Father, we thank you for this time you brought us out here to study your word. Open our hearts, open our minds, help us understand. As we deal with this topic of your sovereignty, it is a great topic, and yet sometimes it's hard for us to grasp it. Open our hearts. Give us uh, just your Holy Spirit to guide us into this truth. We thank you for this time. Thank you for this wonderful day at your house. In Christ's name, amen. Um, today we're going to talk about sovereignty of God. And um, we're also going to get into the area a little bit of theodicy, which I know some of you have been waiting for. We'll talk about what that means here in a minute. But theodicy basically is the origin of sin. How did sin enter the universe? And why did God allow it? If he's sovereign, why did he allow the Satan to do what Satan does? When we talk about sovereignty of God, we're talking about his absolute rule. And one of the questions to ask is, uh, how many sovereign beings can you have in a universe? One, right? Because by definition, once you have two sovereign beings, somebody's not in charge anymore. Someone's going to have to defer to another. Can God create another sovereign being? No, he cannot. Um, and by the way, this is one of the major errors. I'm going to, when, um, as we go through the class, I'm going to be pointing out different, uh, different times some major heresies that you've got floating around out there. One of the major heresies of the word faith movement, I don't know if you ever heard of the word faith movement, but basically the word faith movement is associated with names like uh, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Marilyn Hickey, um, that you see on TBN, Crouch, um, those kind of people. One of the major heresies there is that they downplay the sovereignty of God. In fact, some of them, like I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was Benny Hinn, says it's not what God wants, it's what you want that matters in your prayer. Um, by the way, uh, that's not scriptural. I hope you realize that. God is in charge. You're not. God owes you nothing. God is certainly under no obligation to give us anything. God is absolute sovereign ruler of the universe in all of its respects. God is sovereign in that he exercises all power to bring about all that he wills. Before time began, God, we call this the decree of God. God had a plan. It's called the decree of God. We're going to talk about that in a later lesson in a few weeks. The decree of God. And God's sovereignty assures that his decree will be carried out. Nothing's going to thwart it. Satan is not going to overthrow the plan of God. All of the machinations of men will not overthrow the plan of God. In fact, we want to see a little bit of uh, God's thinking about this. Read Psalm chapter 2, where it talks about how God has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion. And all the nations are like raging and they're scheming. How are they going to overthrow the one that God's anointed? And God sits in heaven and he just laughs. He just laughs. Nothing that we can do, nothing mankind can do, can thwart the eternal purposes of God. God is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over nature. What does it mean by that? He controls nature. When, where is this seen most clearly? Where do you see this most clearly? The Gospels, right? Yeah. Christ is God. We wrote, okay, Christ is God. Okay, so if Christ is God, what did he do? Commanded the winds and the seas, right? Now, that really scared the disciples because they said only God can do that. I mean, he even commands the winds and the seas, and they obey him. God is sovereign over nature. Now, normally, how does God work in the world? He works through his providence. We call that providence. 
God uses natural processes. He uses the, the nature, the, the, the laws that he's built in the nature to affect his eternal purposes. But that does not prevent God from every once in a while just stepping in and doing something. He's perfectly capable of doing that. God is sovereign over nature. You see this in the book of Revelation, right? God is sovereign over the universe. And his sovereignty is best seen in probably 2 Peter 3 when he is going to dissolve the current heavens and earth and create a whole new one. God is sovereign over nature. God is sovereign over history. What do we mean by that? We mean by that is all of the events of history have occurred according to God's plan. Now, when we start talking about that, we raise these uh, questions say, well, now wait a minute, you know. You're telling me that Hitler was part of God's plan? And the answer is, yes, he was. <coughs> but wait a minute, didn't Hitler do some bad things? Yes, Hitler did do some bad things. But that was part of God's sovereign plan. God allowed Hitler to do the things that Hitler did to affect God's eternal purposes. God is sovereign over that. If you want to get away from that, then all of a sudden you make God the... Um, the he, he's subject to our will. He's subject to... Um, what we do, and that, by the way, is the openness of God heresy we're going to talk about in a few weeks. There's a group out there um, that say that God does not infallibly know the future. He's not sovereign over history, and God is just reacting to everything that we're doing. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, we're going to read some verses here in a few minutes that talk about God's sovereignty over all that there is. God is sovereign over salvation. Now, we're not going to go into the whole predestination election thing today. If we did, we would be here ten weeks and not get through it. <laughs> um, that's coming for a later point. Don't worry, we will get there and we will talk about it. But God is sovereign over salvation. Why is it that you're a Christian? You woke up one morning and decided that would be a good thing to do? Or you just lucked out? Now, I'm not saying that we don't have a part in that, right? Because the Bible calls us to repent, does it not? And Christ says, um, when he walked, wept over Jerusalem, he said, I, I, often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under wings, and you would not. Of course God offers salvation to all. And there is a part for us to play in that we must respond to the gospel. But, from the eternal grand scheme of things, God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over those whom he chose. We don't know who they are. So when you preach the gospel, don't worry about whether somebody's elect or not. You preach the gospel. And if they're elect, what will they do? They will respond. Now again, I wish we could talk more about this now, but if we did, we'd get on a rabbit trail that we would never get out of, and we'd not get to the next slide. So hold your questions on this one here. We will get to it. Um, but God is sovereign over salvation. Um, for example, he told the disciples, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. All right. In second, in First Peter, he says uh, that we were called, we were elect. He called us. We were elect before the foundation of the world, chosen before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter one. Just read it. We're predestinated before time began. I don't understand how that all works out, but God is sovereign over that. And by definition, what God does is right, isn't it? Therefore, whatever God does, by definition, is right. I may not understand it. I may not like it, but God is right. God is sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over his creation. Why? He created it. He is outside the boundaries of space and time. 
He's not subject to the universal, universal laws that he's built in. And that's one of the differences with Christianity and some of the pagan religions. And some of the pagan religions talked a couple weeks ago about monism, where all is God, God is all. And it makes God the subject of his creation. God is creation in their mind. God is what, this table is God, I'm God, the computer is God, the screen is God, all is God. And that makes God the subject of, or bound by physical laws. God is not bound by any physical laws. He made them. He created them. He's not subject to them. God's will, and this is important, God's will is never frustrated as his sovereignty is connected to his omnipotence. It's one thing to be sovereign, but if you're sovereign and you can't pull it off, you can be frustrated. God's sovereignty is never frustrated because his omnipotence makes sure that what he says will happen will happen. What he has determined will happen will happen. Now, when we talk about the decree of God, we need to understand something very important here. We don't have a copy of that decree. We don't know what God's ultimate plan is in all respects. We know what he has told us. We know those parts of the plan that he has revealed to us. But God is so far above and his plans are so far infinite than what we can think that even if he told us, we wouldn't get it. We wouldn't understand it. God's plan, God's ways are not our ways. Yes? Right. Because you can't be sovereign without being able to be above everything and thus able to accomplish anything. Right. And that's one of the errors that you're going to see a lot on your TV, when you go to TBN especially. If you watch TBN for any length of time, there's almost a complete denial of God's sovereignty. God is subject to our decisions. He's subject to what we do. He is bound by... By, by us. Uh, God is not bound by us. Anytime you go down a path where you take away God's sovereignty, you're going to wind, wind up ultimately in some kind of heretical thinking, making God non-sovereign. And, and Sammy's right. He's sovereign or he isn't. By definition, if you're sovereign, you're in charge of everything. If you say you're sovereign but you can't do certain things because your will is frustrated by the will of other beings, you're not sovereign. God is sovereign. He alone is sovereign. And He alone is going to work all things out for His own purposes, His own pleasure, His own decree that He decreed before time began. And nothing's going to alter that. All right? Nothing is going to change God in that sense. Um, now, yeah? About the word sovereign, um... Should we be qualifying that saying that God is completely sovereign or that man is limited in his sovereignty? Because man does have certain sovereignty, like nations are sovereign in and of themselves. So I'm just wondering whether sovereign means completely all in all or... That's a good question. That's an excellent question. In fact, it's answered by one of our verses that we're going to read. We talk about sovereign nations. Understand that nations are sovereign only as much as God allows them to be sovereign. 
Remember, when Christ stood before Pilate, Pilate says, don't you get it? I have the power to release you or crucify you. And what was Christ's response? If you didn't, yeah, you'd have no power over me at all if God didn't give it to you. So does God give certain, I don't want to use the word sovereign, sovereign is probably a bad word, but does God give certain parameters for us to move within and work within? Yes, he does. But God is the one who determines what those parameters are. God is the one who orders the nations. And that's why when it comes Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, writes, when, when God talks to Isaiah, God says, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're like dust on the scale. They're irrelevant in the sense that they will not thwart my power, my, my eternal purposes. No nation can do that. Um, so does God give nations a certain level of sovereignty? Sure he does. But those sover- the sovereignty they have is all within his grander scheme of sovereignty. He gives them the power. He gives them the ability and the, um, the parameters of what they can and cannot do. God orders that. So in that sense, God is sovereign over all. Now, one thing to understand, and we have to be careful here, you can't shoot down too far the sovereignty aspect of this or else you become fatalistic. What does that mean? Doesn't matter what you do, God's going to do what he's going to do. Doesn't matter what I do. Does the Bible teach that? No, it doesn't at all, does it? And see, that's why when you start getting into these kind of topics, there's a certain amount of mystery that we're going to have to just live with. The Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign. It does that. But the Bible teaches I am responsible for the decisions I make. And I'm responsible, within those parameters that God has granted me, I'm responsible to make right decisions. But the wonder of it is, any decision I make within the, that, the, the boundaries of what he's given me will not thwart his eternal purpose. And you just got to live with that seeming contradiction in your mind. And when we talk about predestination election, you're going to walk out of here and you're not going to have the answer. What you're going to have is two apparent contradictions in your mind. God is sovereign, but God has called us and given us the responsibility to choose. And the reason people go to hell today is not because they weren't elect, because they refused to believe. And we can't understand that. We're going to have to just come to that wall and say, okay, here's one of those things where the deep things belong to the Lord, and we'll just let it go with that. Um, I, I've struggled with this for many years, and I've come to understand. If you were to ask me, Alan, why are you a Christian? I will tell you, I'm a believer because before time began, God personally chose me. But in time, I chose Him. I can't put those two together. I cannot. No one can. You have to allow the mystery to be there. And to realize there's a level that the Bible gives us a a, a sort of a glimpse into the level of God's divine sovereignty where he gives us a glimpse into his eternal plan, but we still don't know all that there is to know about that. God has called me to be responsible, and I am held responsible for decisions I make. Yes, sir? Just 
would you say that everyone is chosen a Christian, but it's their choice that they choose not to follow? No, that is not true. That is not true. Because God's plan is not frustrated. And see, since God is outside the boundaries of space and time, when God chose me in eternity past, I was every bit as much in glorified as I will be in eternity future. I don't, I don't understand that either. And, and the difficulty, again, let, let me just challenge you here. The, the difficulty when you start talking about this topic is that we want to answer all of the questions. We want to come with a reconciliation in our mind. And... We can't. We, we, we can't do that. We, we can understand it, but we've got to come to a point where we allow the mystery to be there. The same thing's going to happen when we get to Christology. How can Christ be 100% God and 100% man? We don't know that. <laughs> we, we, can't, we can't comprehend that. We can, we can think about it. We can ponder it. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a little bit of a mystery there that we're just not going to be able to, to put them both together. And we've got to allow that mystery to exist. And it's okay for that mystery to exist because we know that God is doing right. We know that God is right. And, and one of the things we'll talk about when we talk about this sovereignty thing here, understand, nobody, how can you put it, how can I put it, when, when we talk about God's election and salvation, there's two impossibilities that arise. One impossibility is for someone who really wants to be saved, but God says, no, you can't because you're not elect. That does not exist. That does not exist. All right? Now, what people might say is they want the goodies that go along with it, right? I want peace, I want happiness, joy, all that stuff. But no one wants God for who God is. Nobody. You want to read Romans 3, 10 through 11, it'll... 3, 10 through 15, it tells you that nobody seeks after God. So one impossibility is no one, there's no one who really wants to be saved, but God says, no, you're not elect, I'm not going to let you. The other impossibility is no one is going to die, wind up in heaven, say, how do I get here? And God says, well, you're one of the elect, you're in. That doesn't work either. Because wherever there's the election of God, there's always, 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 always your response. You repent. You turn to God. The proclamation of the word. How shall they believe unless they hear a word? God's election is not fatalistic. God's election is such that it works through what God has ordained in his word. And those who are elect will believe. They will come to know Christ. They will, be, they will have the gospel shared with them. And they will respond in faith. And no one's going to just wake up in heaven, wonder how they got there, and God says, you lucked out, you're one of the elect, you're here. Alright? And both of those things, you've got to understand, and, and under, just let it be, that both of those things work together. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about this in a later course, so don't worry too much about it now. Um, trying to sort it all out. We will get there. Alright? But, if we get there now, we'll never get through this. <laughs> Alright? Um, let's... Let's talk here. I want to read. I want to have some verses read. I asked somebody to read uh, Daniel 4, 34 through 35. These are some some passages on God's sovereignty. Okay. Let's have Daniel. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. As does he pleases, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is Nebuchadnezzar. You know, I think you're going to find him in heaven. I think when I get to heaven, I'm going to be able to look him up. Because God wants a whole lot of trouble dealing with this guy, didn't he? If you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar, um, Daniel shows up in his court. And uh, through a series of the dreams and the visions that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had, Daniel was raised to a very high position in the kingdom. And finally, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision. And he asked Daniel, what does it mean? And Daniel was speechless. He didn't even want to tell the king. And basically what it was is, the, the, the gist of the vision was, God is going to humble you. And God turned him into an animal for seven years. Nebuchadnezzar, the king who made this grand and glorious Babylon, one of the greatest kings of the ancient world, lived out in the field and ate grass like an ox. The greatest king of all. And finally, at the end of that, after seven years, he lifted up his eyes, his reason returned, and he said, you know what, I get it now. God is the one who is sovereign, not me. God sets up those whom he will set up. And he takes down those whom he will take down. And no one can ask God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? God does as God pleases. And Nebuchadnezzar got it. The hard way. But he got it. How about Job 42? Job is a grand book on the sovereignty of God. Because what you see happening in the book of Job is God is proving something to Satan. The book of Job is really about Satan and God. And Satan is saying, you know what, I can... You know, people serve you, God, because they get all the goodies. <laughs> You're good to them. He said, let me, uh, let me have one of them, and I'll show you just how deep their affection for you is. And so God allows Satan to take away all the wealth of Job. That didn't work, by the way. So finally Satan says, okay, uh, let, me, let me touch his flesh. And God said, you can do anything to him but kill him. Now, if Satan had carte blanche to do anything to you except kill you, how bad would it be? Really bad. Really bad. And then Job has three friends show up to comfort him. <laughs> and that didn't work out too well. And throughout this, Job is struggling. You know, why is this happening to me? What is God doing? If I could just talk to God, if I could just, if I, if I could just sit down and talk to him and ask him what's going on. So finally God shows up in 39. And God says, I'll answer your question, Job, but I'm going to have 64 questions to ask you first. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Where were you when I created the stars? Where were you when I measured out the earth and set up the mountains and carved the valleys for the sea. Where were you 
when I created all of this. And at the end, Job finally says, you know what? I, I, I'll just shut up here. Because he got the point. God is saying, I am sovereign. I've created everything. Who are you to question my purposes? Who are you to question why I do what I do? It's not for you to decide. God is sovereign. God does what God does. And no one can say, why are you doing this? And Job got it. Job understood that God's purposes are beyond our purposes. God's, God's goals are beyond anything we can understand. And God is doing the right thing. He's going to work all things out for His own glory. How about Isaiah 55? My God is saying, my thoughts, my ways are not like yours. I don't think like you think. I don't do things like you do things. And as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways. And so as, as a child of His, what do we need to do? We need to trust Him. And even though we look around and we say, I, you know, I don't understand why this is happening in my life. I don't understand why this catastrophe has happened. Why did God allow this? We need to say, you know, God, I, you have a purpose in this. Nothing's happening that you're not allowing to happen. And I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to rest assured in that you're doing the right thing. And if there's something you want me to know or want me to understand, tell me. But other than that, I trust you on this one. I trust you. How about uh, Job 9, 1 through 12? Who had that one? I got it. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. When he overturns them in his anger... Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who makes the bear Orion and Pleiades and chambers of the south? Who does great things, unfathomable and wondrous works without number? Where, excuse me, were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were, were him, or excuse me, were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who would restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? Again, this is Job acknowledging the sovereignty of God. Who created the heavens? Who created the earth? Who turns the mountains upside down? Who tramples down the sea? And who can say, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this, God? No one can say that. God is sovereign. God alone is the one who decides what to do and what not to do. And he is subject to no one's will but his own will. Um, Isaiah 45, 9-13. Sammy, I think you had that one. Woe unto him that strives with his children. Let the posture strive with the posture of his 
scriptures of the earth. Shall we, shall we say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou, or thy work? He hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. And I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not for price or reward, the Lord's What's God saying there? I'm in charge. I created the heavens. I created the earth. And just as it's, it would be um, almost uh, unheard of for a pot to say to the potter, why would you make me like this? Why did you make me this way? Even so God is saying... You have no right to question how I made you, how I created the universe. I am the one who made it. And no one else beside me made it. God alone, folks, is sovereign. God alone is the ruler in the universe. He is over everything that happens. And whether, whether he, he, he allows it to happen by his, by his directive or by his allowance, he is the one that is in charge of that. He alone runs the universe. Yes? On the one hand, if the questioning is done from a, a, a defiant kind of powerful kind of totally disrespectful uh, manner, then yes. But on the other hand, God is father, uh, daddy, papa. He wants his little ones to ask him why is the sky blue. Yes. And you got you, you understand that. What what the Bible's talking about is that this is fine. What are you doing, God? Sort of like accusing God that you know, you're messing up. Tell me, what's going on here? That's the defiance. If you ask God, Father, why did you bring this trial into my life? What is God gonna do? James one. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. You wanna know why you're going through a trial? Ask God. Now, God may give you an immediate answer, right? God may not. Did God give Job an immediate answer as to why he was going through what he was going? No, it came. But it might take a while for that to come. But in the meantime, what can you do as a child of God? Keep praying. Keep praying and trust Him. Trust God. Yes? Mm-hmm. And, you know, folks, there are times when I've done it. And you've done it too, right? In frustration and anger. What are you doing, God? Are you sure you got this right? And you have to bring yourself back to the understanding, yes, God God is doing it right. God, God is in charge. And, and as I've grown in my Christian faith over the years, I've grown in my relationship with God, more and more I've gotten to the point, I'm not there yet, so you never want to brag about this because then you're in trouble. You, you never want to get... You never get to the point where it's 100%, but as time goes on, hopefully you have a growing 
um, confidence that God knows what He's doing. And even though you may not be able to sort it out, you trust Him. You trust Him. And you see God do marvelous things. All right? Um, but God is sovereign, folks. He is in charge. And by the way, throughout the Scripture, it teaches this. I've just given you four passages, five passages here. You read Isaiah, you read Job, you read Psalms, you read... Again, 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 this thing of God's sovereignty just keeps popping up again and again and again. And it's comforting for us as believers because that means that nothing we do, nothing Satan does, nothing anybody else does out there will thwart God's eternal purpose. And, by the way, Romans 8.28, God works all things for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. God will work all things out for our ultimate good. Even the mistakes we make, God will work out for His eternal good. And our good. And we just need to trust Him on that. He'll work it out. Even when we may not have all the answers. Now comes the question that Seth has been waiting for. What about Satan? One of the immediate questions that comes up is to say, well, you know, if God is sovereign, like you say He is, and God hates evil like you say He does, and God, of course, does hate evil, then where did Satan come from? Why is Satan out there? Why is there evil in the universe? And why isn't God doing something about it? Right? You see that a lot on TV. Well, if God's so powerful, why isn't He doing something about evil? Why does He allow people to get murdered? Why does he allow people to get diseases? Why does he allow this stuff to go on? If he is sovereign, why couldn't he just stop it? And the short answer is, he is. Not on our time scale, time scale right? Is there coming a day when all, you, when all evil in the universe will be done away with? Yes. But it's not according to my daytimer, is it? It's God's. God's got a plan. He's working it out. It will be. I just don't see it yet. But the big question that a lot of people ask is, where does Satan come from? Why is there such a thing as Satan? Why did God allow it? Um, I don't have these verses here, but on Isaiah, I listed up here. But Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, we find an account of the creation of Lucifer, son of the morning, the great angel. Uh, Lucifer, the original name for Satan, was created as God's greatest angelic being. He was the brightest. He was the most wondrous of all. And in fact, he was one of the anointed cherubs. One of the things about the cherub being, what do the cherub being do? What is their job? They, 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 they are the ones closest to God, are they not? When you see um, Ezekiel, in, in Ezekiel chapter 1, when you see Isaiah in Isaiah 6, who is around the throne? The cherubim. And what do the cherubim do? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All the earth is full of His glory. They are the closest to God. Satan was the being in the universe, the created being in the universe, that was the closest to the throne of God. The closest one to God that there was. And what did he do? What was his great sin? Pride. Um, I don't want to fly around the throne. I want to sit on it. I don't want to worship God. I want people to worship me, not people, but angels. I want to be the one who's worshipped. I want to be, I want to exalt my will over God's will. I want to exalt my throne over God's throne. And the, the second that that thought entered Satan, 
sin entered the universe. So where did sin in the universe come from? It came from the rebellion of Satan. And not only did he rebel in his own heart, but what did he take along with him? A third of the angels. They're the demons that we have to deal with today. They're the fallen principalities and powers that we fight against, according to Ephesians chapter 6. Satan fell along with a third of the angels because of his pride, his rebellion. Another account of this is in Ezekiel chapter 28. If you go over there and look, it's talking about the king of Tyre. Tyre was a great city in that day, a pagan city. And in Isaiah chapter 28, Isaiah is given a, um, Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel is given a prophecy against the king of Tyre. But behind the king of Tyre, you see in that prophetic passage an image of something behind that. And that, that something is Satan. And how do you know that? Well, it says... He was perfect from the day he was created. He walked among the stones of fire in the presence of God. That's not the king of Tyre. That's Satan. And Satan was perfect until iniquity was found in him. Yes? Yes. Right. Yes. And the other thing I wanted to to the Pharisees were actually the angels around Isaiah six one The Pharisees were the fire angels, and they had to be fire angels because they were so close to the Shekinah glory. Right. Yeah, there's two. There's, there's cherubim and seraphim, and both of them are seen in the very presence of God. But you're right, it's seraphim in, in Isaiah 6. All right. Um, I'm trying to think over the Ark of the Covenant. It was the two cherubim, right? Over the Ark of the Covenant, you had two cherubim. So they are also, also seen as being those in the presence of God. Yes. And it's not that they're guarding God from us. They're guarding us from God. <laughs> yes. There, there's another mystery that's entered in there with Lucifer. And even for a nanosecond, sin was in heaven. Yes. In fact, Satan has access to heaven now, does he not? Yeah, Revelation 12 says he has access now. He, he's out there constantly accusing the brethren day and night. And one of the things that's going to happen in the future is he gets cast out, which causes heaven to rejoice. That he no longer has access. And by the way, the other way you know Satan has access to God is because uh, Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, where God, there's a day when God calls all of them in and Job shows, or Satan shows up. And God says, what are you up to? And it's not that God needed to know what he was up to, because God knows what Satan is up to. But God wants to get Satan to respond what he's up to. And he says, I'm walking to and fro, up and down, seeking whom I might devour, which... Peter picks up and calls him a lion, a ravenous lion who wants to tear and destroy. But where, where sin in the universe came from was the heart of Lucifer. And when he fell, he became Satan, the deceiver, the liar, the murderer, the evil one. And the question then is, well, okay, if that's where sin came from, why didn't God prevent it? Why didn't God not allow it? Well, I'm going to tell you the answer to that. Ultimately, we don't know. But we can guess. There are some evidences. Again, 
when we just talk about the sovereignty of God, why does God do anything He does? Because He wants to. I can't question that. Alright? I can't question, why are you doing this? But why, if you want to ask about theodicy here, there are basically several ways you can answer this question. We'll get to the, we'll understand this. One, there's a dualistic view of theodicy. A dualistic view says good and evil always existed in the universe. God's good, Satan is evil, and they're fighting it out. Alright? Now that's really not much of a Christian view, but that is some, that's the view of the, you know, the Star Wars almost kind of mentality. Where this is eternal good, eternal evil. And a lot of the pagan religions have this concept of the, the dualistic, the good, evil, the yin, yang, the light, the dark. And they're in constant battle with one another. Alright? The problem with this view is that God is not sovereign. Right? And there's another eternal purpose, another, um, you want to call it a thing out there called evil that is coexistent with God and His eternality. So dualism is not very, a very it's, it's not biblical at all. It's not anywhere found in the scriptures. Alright? But there are some that say, well, good and evil always existed. God is good, Satan is evil, and they're battling it out. Open theism, this is, and we're going to really delve into this more, but open, open theism says God didn't know Satan was going to fall. I mean, Lucifer. God didn't know Lucifer was going to fall. God created him, but Lucifer's fall took God by surprise. Like, whoa, I didn't expect this. What do I do now? And so God is reacting to Lucifer's fall. And when Adam and Eve fell, God says, I didn't expect that. What do I do now? So God's got to respond to that. And when you commit an act of sin, God says, I didn't know they were going to sin. What do I do now? And God's responding to that. The open theism says God does not know the future because the future hasn't happened because God is subject to time. God is not subject to time, folks. He created it. He is beyond it. This is really a heretical view, but listen, this is starting to leak big time into the church. This is starting to leak big time into the evangelical church. The Evangelical Theological Society, which is usually a pretty good society of very, um, you know, uh, scholars, conservative scholars of Christian theology, has a group of them that believe this and they won't throw them out, which is beyond me. How can you deny that God is God? <laughs> You're denying the deity of God if you, if you buy an open theism. God's not sovereign. God is not, he's not omniscient. He's not omnitemporal. He, he's responding. He's, he's trying to, Keep a few moves ahead of us. And because he's big and powerful, he can, but he's reacting to what's happening with us. So if that were really true, obviously, it isn't, then what's left to still call him God? That's right. Other than he's just bigger and smarter and able to keep ahead of us. It's like he's playing a game of chess, and we make the move, and he goes, well, if they make that move, or they make that move, or they make that move, I'm going to do these things. So he's keeping ahead of us in that sense. But the end is not determined yet because it hasn't happened yet. Right. But it's it's dangerous. This is dangerous stuff. This is bad bananas, folks. Stay away from this. Yeah. Yeah. 
If there's, if you learn nothing from 12 weeks in this class, if you don't get anything, I want you to get one thing. If you want to find out what God is like, let Him tell you. Don't try to figure it out on your own. Because you'll get the wrong answer. You'll wind up as an open theist, you'll wind up as some other whatever it is out there. You're going to get yourself balled up. Ruth Ann is exactly right. God has to tell us what He is like. We can't figure it out on our own. And we can only figure out God in as much as God has revealed what He is like. And when He's revealed what He's like in this book, you want to know what God is like, you go here. You don't go to your experiences. You don't go to anything else. The Bible is the revelation of God and what He is like. If you don't, you're going to wind up down this path. And, and it's bad news. It's bad news. A note on open theism, just, um, I mean, it, it was formulated almost entirely out of, out of just a, how are we going to figure out, like, how can, you know, and they didn't, they didn't want to go on the sovereignty issue, they didn't want to believe that God could allow evil to happen, um, or that he could even allow pain to happen. Um, and so, like that, I mean, they formulated this, as, as we've said, completely out of something else, and they, they've ignored the existence of prophecy and the fact that prophecy hasn't been fulfilled, so he had to know the future somehow. And I think what's worse is they haven't even considered this this fact that, you know, time is a created reality. And we've talked about this and how God is simply not subject to the thing that he created. And they haven't dealt with that metaphysical issue. They've just kind of said, well, this is how we're going to deal with this. And um, I, to be as, as kind as possible, I mean, it's, it's, it's really out of, out of a metaphysical ignorance and a theological ignorance that this was put together and it's, um, it's really just kind of pathetic <laughs> yeah um, one of the things um, one of the things I like doing is you know I like taking pictures of photographs and uh, digital photography is a great thing but every once in a while the color balance is just a little off and things look orange or things look blue or whatever one of the things you got to do is you got to bring the color balance right called white balance because your eyes do a good job of that, but the camera doesn't. And um, that's the, the, the metaphor I, I, that, that helps you understand is when it comes to the character of God, one of the things that we desperately have to do is keep all of his attributes in balance with one another. Because what is happening when you get down these paths is you take one attribute of God and you overemphasize that to the expense of other attributes. And what happens is, just like in a color, in a picture, if I take a picture and I put too much red in it, it looks distorted. If I put too much blue in it, it looks weird. If I put too much yellow in it, it looks bad. It only comes out and looks beautiful and looks right when all the colors, the red, the blue, the green, the yellow, all that, is all in perfect harmony and balance with each other. If you don't do that with God, you're going to wind up with a distorted view of God. And that's what happens is, is these people take... Like, like as Dan said, the, the, the big struggle with one of the fathers of this is he had a brother, I think, that was killed in a motorcycle accident. I think it was a motorcycle accident. And he was struggling with how could God allow that to happen? And ultimately his conclusion was God didn't know it was going to happen. It took God by surprise. And God is just responding to that tragedy that God did not know was going to happen because it hadn't happened yet. And so they shoot down a path and get themselves into trouble. Pardon? Just slides aren't matching up with. They're not. I thought they were. I apologize. Um, I'm going to have to. I, I uploaded these. I thought I did. Um, I checked them. 
Well, maybe. Okay. I'm sorry. I apologize. Look at another possible solution here. God created it. God created it. What's the problem with God creating it? Yeah. It's against his nature. There you go. See? It's against his nature. It is God, and it's not God's nature to sin. God, cannot, God hates sin. Why would he create something he abhors? He can't do that. In fact, James 1, 13 through 18, every good gift and perfect gift comes down from above. And by the way, let, let's stop and think about it. Okay, let's understand this. How many days did God take to create the universe? Six days, right? Six days. And then it said that he rested on seven. From what? From the creation. From the created work. Okay? He stopped creating on day six. Is God creating things today? No, he's not. He created it all. Okay? God is not still creating new things. Alright? God accomplished all of the work of creation in those six days. And at the end of the six days, when God looked over everything he made, which is what? Everything he made, what did he say? It is good. Right? Everything God created at the end of six days, when he was resting on the seventh day of his creation... Everything he created was good. And since God is not creating new things anymore, and everything was good when he stopped creating, did God create evil? No. It came in afterwards. It came in afterwards. God did not create evil. Alright? But what did God do? God allowed it. Yes? God did not create evil. God allowed evil. But, so there is one thing that, that wasn't created that entered in. If you want to make... If, if, the problem with... I think the, the, uh, the difficulty with that thought there is to think that evil had to be created or it wouldn't exist. God allowed it. God created the universe with the potential of evil. But he didn't create evil. Well, All right. evil doesn't have to be a created reality. Um, we talked about like God created things. He created man. He created the universe. Um, you could argue God didn't create good. He simply is good. Um, and there, the, there's been a whole theology or philosophy brought up that evil is simply the absence of God. You know, like cold is the absence of heat or whatever. Um, maybe not a bad analogy to that, um, but... I don't think we need to worry about like where evil came from. God, God created the universe and, and he allowed it to happen. And, and my, my personal belief is that because God is gracious and because he is, he is merciful and just, um, he allowed evil to happen so that he could judge it. 
um, and and showed himself glorified in that process. Um, so yes. Yeah. Sam, tell me. In the garden, the edict, the mandate was don't eat of that singular tree because it is the tree of the knowledge yes. of good and right. and evil. And so I personally believe evil has always coexisted with good. Otherwise, how can it be good without something being bad? And the answer to that would be that, that Satan fell after. Yeah, Satan fell after the creation of the universe. Between, yeah, someday during the seventh or on day, that's when Satan fell. That's when evil entered the universe. God planted a garden. God, it said God planted a garden and put the man and woman in there. All right, and he said, and the command was, all the trees you can have with that one. There was nothing evil particularly about that tree. It, it, it was just a command, that tree you don't eat of. No, I, I, I think when you start saying that, well, you know, if he ate, when, that, when Eve ate that fruit, it was poison or something. It was disobedience. The imagery there is not the tree was evil. It's that she did what God told her not to do. All right, that was the evil. That's what made it evil. Is it? It did something. She did something. God told her not to do. Yeah. No, I think it's good to also distinguish what evil is. Is it a thing or is it a state of things? Yeah. You know, and, and to, we think of it as a thing created this thing evil when that's really, a, 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 as, as best I can understand, it, a description of the state of the thing. Yes. In disobedience. Yes. So for to have a free choice, the potential for disobeying the choice is there. Yes. So the potential of sin was there. But the actuality of it is not. Right. And and the the thing to understand, and again, when it comes to this, you're going to have to just go to a certain level and say, okay, there's a mystery here. God allowed evil. God created Lucifer with the ability to choose or not choose. God created Adam and Eve with the ability to choose or not choose. God did not make them make a choice. God did not force them to make the choice they made. Right. God, God allowed them to make the choice. And God knew that they would make the choice, but he didn't make them make the choice. Go think about that one long and hard. That's tough, all right? But God did not create evil. And the question is, then why did God allow evil if he is all good? And the answer is, he allowed evil to glorify himself. Now, what does it mean to glorify God? To show light on who he is and what he's like. Yeah, that's it. You got it. To, to display what he is like. You want what is God like? That's to glorify God. Now, pretend that evil never existed in the universe. And instead of sitting around in this class, we're all sitting around heaven, and God says, I'm a God of justice. How would we respond to that? What's that? God says, I'm a God of love. Huh? I'm a God of wrath. Wrath. What's wrath? What is that? What's mercy? What's grace? What's forgiveness? What are those things? We, we would have no way to relate to that. None. Yes. 
And the reason, folks, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 is, is one of the great verses of the Bible. All things were created for thy pleasure. God created the entire universe to display his attributes, his character to his created order. And if God did not allow evil, there would be a whole side of his character we would never understand. We would never comprehend. What is going to make heaven great for us? I'll tell you what's going to make heaven great for me. It's going to be the realization that I don't deserve to be there. And the knowledge that God has forgiven me is going to give me a depth of appreciation and love to him, for him that I would never have had I never experienced sin. I had never, if I had never known what it was like to be a sinner and to need forgiveness and to need mercy, I would not know that. I would not understand that. But we will understand God's mercy and love and grace and forgiveness and compassion all of those attributes that, that he wants to share with his created universe would be hidden had there not been, a, been sin. God allowed evil, folks. He did not create it. He did not make it. He does not force it on his creatures. He allows them to make the choice. And God will ultimately judge it. But in doing so, he is drawing glory to himself. Yes? In a sense, yes. In a sense, yes. And right away, that's the argument, by the way, in Romans chapter um, 5, at the end of chapter 5. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And one of the questions that people say, well, you know, if God is so forgiving, I'm going to just show how forgiving He is. I'm going to go sin it up. And when He forgives me, that's going to make Him look really good. And Paul says, shall we do that? God forbid. No. Don't. Never presume on that. Folks, I... Because, because of sin in the universe, because of corruption, because of the evil around us, we, are going, we see a side of God that would be hidden for all of eternity had it not existed. Why did God allow evil? He allowed it for His own purposes. And when you get in God's faith and say, why in the world did you do that? God's saying, well, what's the pot doing calling the potter? Why did you make me like this? What, what you, you have no right to do that. It's a struggle for some of us. You know, I don't... And, and again, this is, a, this is a struggle. People struggle with this. But you've got to be careful and just go with what the Scripture says. What does the Scripture say? God allowed it. He didn't create it. That's, that's what you've got to go with. Yes, I was, you had a question? You know, um, I guess if you look like at the garden and Adam and Eve, there was no sin in there until they ate from the apple. You don't think that... Yeah. Wherever the fruit was. I think it was a plum, but that's just me. They saw, they saw part of it. They saw God's goodness, right? They talked with God in the cool of the day. But they had no concept of God's forgiveness because there was nothing to be forgiven for. Right? They had no concept of grace because there was nothing... There was no fallenness. And God allowed them to fall. God allowed them to make the choice they made in order to affect his eternal purpose. His eternal purpose is to glorify himself to all of creation and the way that he can only do that is to allow the existence of evil. That's the, look folks, that's the best way I can explain it. And even there, there's a mystery. You've got to go with it. 
Um, we did not get through all of our information. We will pick up this topic next week. Yes? Yes. And that's one of the great things. And Peter talks about the elect angels who look into the things of salvation and they scratch their heads. And they, there are some things that, they, that you will know that the, angel, the holy angels will never know. Because the holy angels will never know God's forgiveness. They don't need it. They've never fallen. We have. We're going to appreciate God. And look, folks, when you really grasp on to God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion and love, it changes your mind. It changes your heart. It, you don't want to go sin. Because you see how gracious He is. And it glorifies Himself. Why did God allow evil? To glorify Himself. To display His character. He didn't create it. He allowed it. And that's the best we can do. Yes. God is going to deal with evil. It will be dealt with. But not on our time schedule. Yeah. I'll put these back up. I'll, I'll put. I thought I did, but I might not have put the right ones up there. I'll do that. I don't try to change them much, but every once in a while I put in a couple slides, and I thought I put them back up there, but I didn't. So my fault. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. We're a couple minutes over. Father, thank you so much for this day, for your grace, for teaching us. And admittedly, we come to a topic here that's just hard for us to grasp. And even in an hour, how in the world can we deal with something like this? We can only scratch the surface of it. But as we ponder these things, I pray that you would guide us with your spirit. And at the end of the day, that we would just look to you and say, Father, we trust you. We may not understand all of this, but we trust that you have our best interests at heart. And let us uh, take rest and refuge in that. In Christ's name, amen.